Well, we have this amazing privilege of actually speaking to the one we've been singing to and about, and we have the assurance that he hears us. Can you imagine such a thing? See, none of this is, is make-believe. It's actually supernatural. In other words, it's not a matter of flesh and blood. It's beyond us, but there really is a God who listens, who cares. As I'm going to try to explain to you, there is a God who not only listens and cares, there is a God who came down. So let's talk to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so very much for coming among us, becoming like us, becoming one of us, Lord, so that we would know who God actually is and know that we have a relationship with him and one that is peaceful and joyful and sure and unlike any other relationship we could ever have on earth. The best relationships we have here are only pale reflections of the one we can have with you. And we thank you for that. Give me grace, Lord, to explain it. This, all of this is beyond me, too. I, I'm just another worshiper. I'm someone in need of your mercy and grace. So I pray that you'd give it to me as we look into your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. Later today at 5.30, we'll have the first of our Christmas Eve services. I hope you'll join us either this afternoon at 5.30 or one of two services tomorrow on Christmas Eve proper at 3 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, I really hope we, this room is going to be transformed and we're going to sing together starting this afternoon. I hope you can return as we celebrate the birth of Christ if we haven't met, or if we just met for a quick second out in the parking lot, I met several people like that. My name is Bruce Garner. I am very glad that you're here, especially during the Christmas season. I don't know in what condition people come to church. Some people come happily, and they practically skip through the door. Other people get dragged because it's a social obligation, and Grandma said I had to, and how long is this going to take? And whatever condition you came in, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. And sometime later this morning, I'm not entirely sure when, maybe even as we speak, the Dallas Cowboys are on their way to disappointing me yet again. <laughs> Please don't look at your app and find out if that's true. I, I, I literally actually don't want to know. And I didn't have any choice to be a Cowboys fan. My dad's from Fort Worth. I was born in Amarillo, though I was raised in Mexico, and the whole sad journey began. I think I was four, my dad was hunched over a radio, basically putting his head down on the radio, listening to a station that turned out to be out of Fort Worth, and I'd never seen my dad in this attitude with this device. It looked like he was praying. Actually, he was just trying to hear through a whole bunch of static, and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm listening to the Dallas Cowboys. And, you know, I had a book about cowboys, and I didn't know why anyone would listen to cowboys and why they had to be from Dallas. I imagined ropes and steers and yippee-ki-yay. But eventually, he, he made me into a football fan, and that's part of the burden that I've had to bear. And I got indoctrinated into, into football, and through football, I met all kinds of the wild personalities that populate the NFL, including a legendary coach for the Packers named Vince Lombardi. You ever heard of him? See, I don't know why, being so long removed from our time, but he remains one of those iconic Mount Rushmore of football kind of guys. And he had a famous saying, 
which is why football players train and condition so hard. Lombardi said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And that's true. You get tired enough, you feel like quitting. Has it ever happened to you? You ever wanted to quit on something that you knew was worthwhile? I didn't know how true that was until I was in Bible college. My wife and I and her sister and her future husband, who's now my brother-in-law, all went to Bible college here in Southern California. And I didn't know how true Lombardi was and just how much quit I had in me until I started going to Bible college and we were dating. There were two couples, if you're following along. It's my wife, her sister, me, and her future husband. And we were all, and we remained dear friends, and we started this little tradition. My parents would come up from Mexico to El Paso. We would finish our finals in San Dimas, and right after finals, where you're mentally tired already, we would drive from San Dimas straight through to El Paso, Texas. If you've ever driven from Southern California to even the border of Texas, which is El Paso, you know what a desolate, awful, why does this exist, why would anybody live here in this vast expanse? 806 miles, I know because I counted, and I felt every single one of them. And we had college, we had the kind of cars college students might have, right? Beat down, barely making it, we would load all of our belongings into it and head straight out. Sad news is, and I really actually thought quite a bit whether I should tell this story because there's so many levels of stupid to it. Somebody might even be inspired by it for the wrong reasons, and the, this story is not the point. It's not an example. I'm actually discouraging you from doing what we did. We would drive 800 and some miles straight through, and what that meant was, especially after finals, we would routinely fall asleep while driving, which, as you may have considered, is dangerous. A second level of stupid is, being young men, we insisted on being noble and serving our girlfriends, in Tim's case his fiance, by doing all the driving ourselves. And no, no, we've got this. You rest, baby. We'll, we'll do this. Right? And what would actually happen is we would take turns waking each other up by flashing our lights and honking the horn, and you'd realize, oh, and we just kept driving. After it was all over, I compared notes with Tim, my brother-in-law, and I said, you know, man, I got so tired, I actually fought off this thought. If I went in the ditch, at least I could rest. <laughs> so if you're following along, I've lost the will to live somewhere in New Mexico. <laughs> I don't even care if we crash, I just want to be able to close my eyes. And he says, as guys who are coming up in college in Southern California tend to do, he says, bro, I know. <laughs> he said, I kept looking over at Cindy, thinking, I don't care if I die, but she deserves to live, so I'm going to stay awake. He said, and then three hours later, I looked at Cindy and thought, if I hit it hard enough, we would both be with Jesus immediately. <laughs> And how bad could that really be? So, if you're following along, we're 20, 21 years old, have literally everything to live for, but we want to actually, we're considering whether we should crash and die in the desert of New Mexico just because we're so tired. 
Lombardi was right. And it's not just physical fatigue. See, people get tired for all kinds of reasons. Usually in the modern world, unless you have one of those jobs that grinds you down physically, and most people don't, we think of quitting things that are so important for emotional reasons, for spiritual reasons. You ever felt like quitting on something that really mattered? The book of Hebrews is a mysterious book tucked in the back of your New Testament. I'd like you to open it there. And it's written specifically to encourage and to warn people who are right on the verge of quitting. They have something much more important in mind than something like a cross-country drive. It's called the book of Hebrews because it was written as best we can understand it. It was written to Jewish believers in the first century, hence the name Hebrews. You'll find that name nowhere in the book, but it's very obvious who the original readers were because though this book is in the New Testament, it is absolutely packed with the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. In fact, Christians often avoid it or read it very selectively, including one of the passages that I'll explain to you at the end of the sermon simply because they're intimidated by it. It has a lot of Old Testament in it. It speaks of priests. It speaks of sacrifices. It speaks of the Mosaic Law. The first chapter is filled with mentions of things like angels. And to a 21st century reader, even Christians, if they're not very familiar with the Old Testament, it just seems like it's all very long ago and far away, and it's not immediately apparent what the connection is or what difference it makes. The first thing you have to understand about the book of Hebrews is that it's written to first century Jews who have started believing in Jesus. Some of them are following Him as His disciples, but they're actually thinking about quitting. In their case, it's not physical fatigue, it's spiritual discouragement, it's social pressure. They're starting to be pushed out of their families, it's starting to cost them employment, it's starting to cost them social standing. They're going into social situations and finding, the, finding previously great relationships frosty and distant. Their children aren't being invited and included. For them, it's really starting to cost to follow Jesus. So the book of Hebrews, really the best we can understand it, is a long sermon. It's written to, again, Jews, to Hebrews in the first century with a very simple idea, one single message, and here it is, Jesus is just better. He's better than every single thing that we were ever told and ever promised in the Old Testament. As I hope you'll understand before I'm done, it's actually a story about the Christmas event. It's a story about the birth of Jesus, not seen from, not seen from earth with shepherds and wise men, but seen from heaven from God's point of view. Look in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll see what I mean. It says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And right from the first line, you hear the Jewishness of Hebrews. 
God had spoken to Israel long ago at many times and in many ways, and He had spoken to their ancestors, people like people that they had read about in their scriptures, specifically through the prophets. Again, this is part of why the book becomes complicated. We're not very familiar with prophets. The only place you're likely to encounter a prophet these days is a self-styled prophet who rants and raves about conspiracy theories on the internet, or you might find the name prophet in the name of some random band. But a prophet is a very biblical idea. A prophet, and there weren't that many of them actually, is someone who has been sent from God to tell His people who He is and remind them about what He wants. And from the very first line of this book, he says, God has been speaking to our ancestors for a long time through the prophets, but here's the first evidence of Jesus simply being better. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Well, that's different. It's one thing to send you a messenger, someone on your behalf someone on my behalf, but to send the Son is a whole other story. It's qualitatively different and better. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, meaning Jesus owns everything there is, and through whom also He created the world. Now, I've just barely read you the first two verses of the book of Hebrews, and already astonishing claims are being made about Jesus. As you keep reading the book of Hebrews, the argument is this, Jesus is better than the prophets and He is better than the angels. He's better than everything they've known. He's better than everything God has ever said. Even the good, legitimate things that God has done and said from them in the past are now being replaced and exceeded because Jesus is just better. That word, better, or something like it, appears 25 times across the book of Hebrews because what Hebrews wants to do is introduce the readers to Jesus and remind them of how superior, how better He is, so that they won't let go of Him. Verse 3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Sometimes people will say, based on a very selective reading of the Bible or not much reading of it at all, They'll say something like this. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that Jesus is God. It says that over and over and over again in so many different ways, it's hard to count them all. Here's one of them. Jesus, the one who had very famously and notoriously preached all across Israel, preached in their synagogues, healed the sick, raised the dead, restored sight to the blind. In other words, an ordinary man born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, an ordinary person, a carpenter's son, who is esteemed lightly and actually discriminated against and often mocked because of where he was born and the origin of his family, Hebrews says who Jesus actually is, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And you'll say, I'm not sure I understand that. Me neither. That's about as heavy as a biblical claim gets. Here's what it means. Jesus has the exact same essence and nature of God. If they ever made you take philosophy, 
The godness of God, Hebrews is telling you. What God is, his essence, his very nature is now made visible in Jesus. So that when you're looking at Jesus and listening to Jesus in his time, and doubtless many of the people receiving this letter had been eyewitnesses to him, and they marveled at him, and they heard his fulfillment, they heard his preaching, they saw his miracles, and they agreed with the prophets. And they said to themselves, there's no other way out of this. He has to be the one that God has promised. And they've held on to that confession, but now it's starting to cost them as it sometimes will. And I'm reasonably sure in the next 10 to 20 years, American Christians who have had this incredibly privileged, sheltered, protected position in our society, we might start to understand more in the years to come that following Jesus and claiming Jesus and owning up to Him has a social cost. Can't be sure, I'm not a predictor, but it might be. And remember, if that day comes, he'll be worth it because he's better. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, he takes the nature and the essence and the character of the God who is invisible and makes it visible, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, who else but God can do something like that? Who can keep the universe together by his own will, by his own word, if not God himself? And here's the really stunning thing. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And some of you may say, see, this is why I don't come to church. I don't get it. Let me try to explain it. Remember, you're reading somebody else's mail. Here we are 2,000 years later, most of us Gentiles, not all, but most of us Gentiles, and we're reading something so Jewish that it doesn't immediately grab us. This is a priestly statement. They had grown up their whole lives reading in the Hebrew Scriptures of the priestly system. First there was a tabernacle and later there was a temple. And their entire life rotated around the worship of God through priests and through sacrifices. Most famously, there was one priest, the high priest, who alone was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle, inside the temple, once a year. One man to make one sacrifice until the next year when he had to do it all over again. And when he died, someone would, be, would rise in his place and over and over and over and over and over again for generations as long as the Jews had a tabernacle or a temple. And the author of Hebrews, whoever he is, is writing to them and telling them, in these last days, after God spoke to us through prophets, in our own lifetime, in our day, he spoke to us by his son. And his son isn't another mere person. His son actually is God. The son of God is God himself. Makes perfect sense. He is the son of God after all. He's not an angel. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. 
And what Jesus came to do is this. He came to make purification for sins. In other words, he came to cleanse, forgive, and cover sins. And once that was done, and this would have hit them hard, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What's the meaning? Well, you can read in your Old Testament, maybe you've seen it in movies or you've seen it in an animation if you've studied the Bible a little bit. There was a lot of furniture that God built that God commanded to be built for the tabernacle and later for the temple, but one piece of furniture was missing. There was no chair. The priests who continually ministered and the high priest who continually ministered and went into that one place one time a year was never given a chair because he always had to be in his feet as a visible reminder to the people, we're not done. When this man dies, someone else will come, and he'll stand on his feet, and he'll go for as long as his age and health will permit him into the Holy of Holies year after year after year, but now comes Jesus, the exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance, the light of God's own glory. He came among us. And he was more than a prophet because he made purification for sins and then he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God because he's done, it's covered, it's settled. And this is the real tragedy of religion. And I'm not talking to you about religion. I'm talking to you about the gospel. In other words, the good news that the Bible announces. Here's the difference. Religion tells you whatever its name is, even if it names Jesus, religion will tell you that God is way up here and here are the things you have to do to climb up. And all the religious systems differ. And they all have different rules and regulations. They have some things in common, but everyone has their own little checklist of do's and don'ts. And if you do enough of the do's and you avoid enough of the don'ts, maybe someday you'll climb up high enough. The gospel, including the book of Hebrews with this strange, mysterious, 2,000 years removed language, announces something much better. Not that you have to climb up, but that Jesus came down that He lived among us to make purification for sins. In other words, simply that He is a better priest. He's better than the prophets, He's better than the angels, and He's a better priest. He's speaking to them on their terms from their culture so that they'll understand exactly who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 2, please, verse 17, sums up His argument regarding the priesthood of Jesus. A priest is someone who stands between people and God and brings them together. He's a reconciler. He's a bridge builder between sinful people and a holy God. Here's the summary of what Jesus did for us. It's a little heavy. It's really rich. Read it with me. Speaking of Jesus, this is what we're told. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What this passage is telling you is that Jesus was made one of us. That's Christmas. 
That's the Christmas event. That this one who was prophesied is not an angel. He's not an apparition. That God is actually going to send His own Son that at a specific time in history, a time that God Himself chose, the eternal Son of God is going to become flesh. And He'll be born in the ordinary way with a great deal of pain and a great deal of blood and a great deal of water and fear. And a mother asking a wide-eyed young man, is he okay? And him asking her, are you okay? And them cradling an actual human baby, a baby boy, who would grow up to the amazement of his parents, Mary included. Scripture says that she marveled at the things that he said and did, that she treasured up all the things that were said about Jesus, and she treasured them up and pondered them in her heart. In other words, that that old Christmas song, Mary, did you know, has something to tell you. The value of that song is it's helping you enter. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Here's the value. It's helping you enter the very real human experience of an ordinary human woman who herself knows that she needs a Savior, marveling that a son that was born from her womb is actually God. And the very imprint of God's nature and the fullness and the brightness of God's own glory And he did all that, the passage we just read together says, he did that becoming like us so that he would be a faithful and merciful priest on our behalf, and here's why he's able to help us. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, and he is able to help those who are being tempted tempted. So the book of Hebrews is one large large argument that because Jesus is better, you have to hold fast to Him. That no one else is coming. That no one greater or better or sweeter could come. That God Himself has come, which leads us to this familiar passage. I'm going to explain this to you and then I'll be done. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 14, that's printed on your outline. Hold that close so that we can read it together a little bit later. Hebrews chapter 4 says to these discouraged, frightened, persecuted people this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And again, that's one of those quick little phrases that is filled with meaning. Because all the high priests they had ever heard about would push into the Holy of Holies by opening up a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and all an earthly priest could do is make it past a veil. The author of Hebrews says Jesus did more than that. He didn't push aside a curtain or a veil, he has actually gone through the heavens. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In other words, don't get tired. Don't get weary. Don't get scared. Don't let the persecution, don't let the embarrassment, don't let people ostracizing you socially make you let go of Jesus. And here's why you can hang on, and here's why Jesus is such a great high priest. Read the next two verses with me. Verse 15, 
Hebrews 4, verse 15, right off, the, right off the outline so we can read the same thing. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What makes Jesus such a great high priest? Here's the answer. Verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 15 such a radical verse that sometimes even pastors are afraid to explain it in clear language. Here's what it means. That in every category that human beings can be tempted to evil, to guilt, to shame, to go against their own conscience, to sin against God and other people, in every category that ordinary people like us can be tempted, Jesus was tempted. See, because if you hold so clearly to Jesus, the Son of God, and He really is. He's God Himself. He's God who took on flesh. That's the meaning of Christmas, that the eternal Son of God came among us. But if you focus clearly and exclusively on His deity, God being so very much unlike the rest of us, in other words, being holy, which literally means a cut above, someone who's set apart, you'll think if you remember only that Jesus is God, you will think that He has nothing in common with you. And He does. That's the point of Christmas. The Word, the eternal Word, became flesh. In other words, He was born in an ordinary human fashion. He was subjected to every kind of weakness and human frailty, which is why from the cross He said things like this, I thirst. Which is why He staggered and fell beneath His cross. Which is why He actually bled and suffered and eventually died because the Son of God has come among us. It's the greatest miracle in human history. Nothing in science fiction can hold a candle to it. It is the most extraordinary thing that God pierced the veil of the supernatural and so that you would know exactly who He is, sent His Son to be one of us. And in His humanity, with His human nature, He has suffered every temptation that human beings know. And the reason that pastors, sometimes even pastors, are afraid to explain that clearly is that it's hard for us to conceive of what the Bible is plainly telling you, that Jesus is tempted. And here's how Christians become self-righteous. There are some temptations that appeal to us and some that don't. And we become really, really proud of the things that don't appeal to us. And we stand in judgment against other people who are led astray and fall on those very same things. But whatever your besetting sin is, the guy who's talking to you, I sin in all kinds of ways. I won't get into specifics, it would embarrass me. It would embarrass anybody who cared about me. But the people who know me well, they, they know. 
All kinds of things, just like you. Maybe they're things of sins of the Spirit. Not to get too personal, but maybe you're envious. Maybe you have a really, really, really hard time comparing your life with other people and resenting them for it. Maybe you're angry. And you have uncontrollable anger that sometimes surprises you. And as much as you've tried to keep it in check, it continually erupts and embarrasses you. And you fear that the people who are closest to you, frankly, are getting a little bit tired of it. Maybe it's something quiet and sad that you wouldn't easily admit, like you've become bitter. Nobody admits to bitterness and it's an embarrassing kind of sin. Anybody know a bitter person? That was a real question. Do you know any bitter people? Anybody want to stand up and admit to being a bitter person? Hardly anyone, just jokingly. Maybe for you it's not something in the spirit. Maybe it's actually something in the flesh. It comes through your physical body. Maybe you are sexually tempted and sexually weak. And maybe you don't come to church because sins of the flesh make you embarrassed and feel guilty and ashamed. And you've believed the lie that the only people who come to church are righteous people, or at least self-righteous people. And you don't want to open your Bible. You don't want to hear about God because the very concept of God, who you somehow know is high and holy and lifted up and to whom you will someday give an account, makes you feel so terrible, so dark, so weak, so embarrassed that you don't even want to talk to Him about it. Well, this is the beauty of the birth of Christ and the incarnation of Jesus. It says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, whatever they are. Anger, sex, greed, vice, whatever it is, he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is a great high priest because whatever has brought you low he felt it. He understands it. He can watch you struggle with sin. He can even watch you sin and say to himself, I know what that temptation feels like. I've felt its full strength, but he's able to save you because it says he was tempted as we are, but did you get the good part? Without sin. Which leads to number two. Not only can he sympathize with our weaknesses, he's a great high priest because he's actually able to save us from sin. And he doesn't save you by inviting you to do better. See, this is one of the great misunderstandings of the preaching of the gospel. That Jesus was perfect, so try harder. That's really what a lot of people are hearing in church, and if you've ever heard that from me, please forgive me if I've failed to be clear. The message of the gospel is not, Jesus is perfect, so you try to be. The message of the gospel is that Jesus was perfect for you, on your behalf, to trade places with you. That's what you're going to hear in the Christmas Eve service much shorter than today in some of these prophecies. It was all done on your behalf because Jesus had no sin of his own. He is eternal, flawless, perfect, beautiful, holy God. He became a human being to enter into our exact experience, to be able to look at weak, frail sinners, men like me, who so many times have disappointed myself by falling into the same old thing, 
and some of the stupid things that have made me embarrassed to be myself since I was 13 years old are still in my life all these years later. Can anybody relate to that? And I asked myself, what's wrong with me? I've got all these years. I went to seminary, for goodness sakes. I own like 12 Bibles. Why can't I figure this out? (laughs) I've told people to stop being what I am and to stop doing what I do. Here's the beauty of my great high priest. He sees me struggle and he sees me fail and he gets it because he felt it. That's why he can sympathize, but because he faced the same struggle and the strength of temptation that I know nothing of because I'm easily knocked over. I don't know about you. Generally speaking, it doesn't take a great temptation to make me fall. A medium one will do. Sometimes a small one. Jesus looks at everything that sin offers, feels the full weight of its solicitation away from God and away from righteousness, and stands holy, pure as the Son of God Himself, and He is able to save me because He's been there. And then it says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Because we have a priest like this, the author of Hebrews says, hold on to him. God's not sending anyone else. No one better ever could come. Hold on to him, and while you hold on, go to him with confidence, my Bible says. This was written in Greek. I actually like a different translation a little bit better. Maybe you have it. There's a stronger word than confidence some older Bible translations have. Does anybody see it in their Bible translation? Boldness. Let us then, it says, with boldness draw near to the throne of grace. And again, there's a lot there. God is high and lifted up. God sits on His throne. How could you ever approach the throne of God with confidence? I don't, approach, I don't approach police officers with a great deal of confidence. Why? Because they have authority. The few times I've stood in the presence of real authority, like a judge, being called into the dean's office, stood in front of someone who had a great deal of authority over a section of my life, I've never stood there with a great deal of confidence. Why can I stand in the presence of God? Why am I told to approach Him with confidence? Because the throne of God's authority has been transformed, and for you, if you trust Christ, it's not only a throne of authority, did you catch it? It's a throne of, what's it say there? Of grace. Because you enter into God's presence and He remains the King and the Creator, but because of the gift of His Son, He's not only the great King, He is also your Father. And Jesus traded lives with you and brought you into God's family. So listen, young ladies, God sees you as His precious daughter. And it's not a matter that your Heavenly Father would do anything for you. It's actually a matter of the fact that your Heavenly Father has already done everything for you. He sent His Son to live and die in your place, and we can approach the throne of grace. It says that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So number three, Jesus can help us in our time of need. 
and I'm guessing, and I'm through, but I'm guessing that some of you drag yourself through life and even drag yourself to church. And the Bible stays closed far more often than you'd like because you feel such a weight of guilt and embarrassment. You think for a moment, there's a God, my conscience is telling me of His goodness and His righteousness. I just feel bad. In those moments, in those situations, this is why Jesus came. There's no shepherds, no angels, no wise men in this story because this is the Christmas event seen from God's point of view. God saw you. He looked across history and saw you in the distance between you and his own righteousness. So he came to take your place so you can enter the throne room of God, not with your eyes downcast as people did in ancient times. Because in the old days, the only safe way to approach a king was go only when you were summoned. And even when you were summoned, if you knew what was good for you and you wanted to live, you kept your eyes down on the ground until he told you or actually made you physically look up. The throne room of the God who made the entire universe has been transformed for you. You can enter into it with confidence because there you will find mercy and there you will find God's grace to help you exactly when you need it. When should you look for God? When you need Him. When do you need Him? Every moment. You can't take a breath without Him. There's nothing in your life that is actually under your control in all this terrible division that is happening in our country. I hope at least that is being made clear to everyone. This world is dangerous and we are frail and nothing is actually under our control. We need grace and mercy from the God who rules over everything. And He has sent His Son to live and die in your place to actually trade his life for your own so that you could approach him with the confidence of knowing that he is your beloved, loving father. That's the Christmas story, and that's why Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, as we take a moment and reflect on our own situation, I pray that you would give us grace. Give us all humility, and along with humility, confidence, so that we would do, each one of us, what we should. And if you'll just stay there a moment in that kind of reflective, quiet place, nothing religious about it, we just bow our heads and close our eyes to give a, a moment of personal privacy and reflection. Let me talk first to my fellow disciples, my fellow Jesus followers. Do you avoid going to your heavenly Father because you feel the weight, you feel the guilt? It's all gone. It's all been satisfied in Christ. Sin is real, but grace is greater. That's what the Bible says. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Your sin has been dealt with. It's been covered. The indignation of God has been satisfied. God is right as we are to be angry with wrongdoing, but He sent His Son to be our substitute, to take our place. And yet, if we're not very careful, the reality of sin 
the fact that we feel that distance, we feel that darkness, we feel guilt and shame keep us from Him. We don't approach Him with confidence. We're anxious, we're afraid, we're self-rejected. We'll never be God-rejected. That's the point of Jesus' coming. That's why God blew up religion and announced the good news of the gospel instead. And maybe, maybe, I don't know. Again, people come to church for all kinds of reasons this time of year. Maybe you didn't particularly want to come, but you've heard the good news, and it's a lot to get your mind around, and I totally get that. But maybe you've heard this much. You've heard the truth of the Bible that you've sinned and fallen very short of God's standard, as we all have, as I certainly have, but that God has literally died in your place to trade lives with you to offer you eternal life, to welcome you into His family, not by you doing better, not by you checking all the religious and spiritual boxes, but by welcoming, trusting Him instead of yourself. That's the good news. This isn't good advice. It's good news. It's an announcement that the way's already open, that the price has already been paid. If God has brought you to a point this morning that you're ready to trust Jesus, let me invite you to call out to Him in prayer. Because He's a person, He really is ready, waiting, eager to forgive anyone who claims Him, anyone who follows Him. You can call out to Him and say, Jesus, I don't understand everything I've heard, but I know I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it and fallen short of your standard, and I'm sorry please forgive me. Trade lives with me. Take my sin and give me your forgiveness and your righteousness instead. All over the world, in practically every language of the world, this good news is being announced this weekend. People from every walk of life and with every kind of guilt and shame in their past are going to discover what the Hebrews discovered, that He really does save. And they're going to find their life transformed not because they're better, but because He is. So, pray to Him. I'll be quiet now so that you can ask Him honestly, sincerely for forgiveness. He'll grant it to you. And Jesus, only you can do this and the hundreds of people who will be here this weekend. You can speak and deal with each one. You can bring them a step closer. You can help some, and I pray that you would cross the line of faith and take what faith they have in you, what understanding and trust they have in you, and tell you simply that they believe you. And you will trust you, Lord, in loving sacrifice, will welcome them and save them and forgive them. I know it's true because you've done it for me and I've seen you do it for countless others. I pray that you would add to your family this morning. And as we sing, Lord, and give this offering, that you would be welcomed and worshipped and praised. In Christ's name, amen.